This is mission.org. Hey, Marketing Trends fans. This is Ian, host of Marketing Trends and Chief Content Officer here at mission.org. First off, I wanted to thank all of you for subscribing and listening to the podcast. Our goal is to make a show that is helpful for marketing leaders around the world. And we have a fun opportunity to meet the Marketing Trends team in person. We will be podcasting live from Serious Decisions 2019 Summit on May 5th to 8th in Austin, Texas. Thanks to our friends at Salesforce Pardot. And you can nominate a podcast guest. That's right. We are looking for B2B marketing legends to tell their story. You can nominate a teammate or yourself to be a featured guest on the Marketing Trends Podcast if you click on the link in the show notes. Also, make sure to come by the Pardot booth number 402 to win swag and meet the team. And if you can't make it to Austin, don't worry. All of the episodes that we will record will be right here in our Marketing Trends podcast feed and in the marketingtrends.com newsletter. Thanks so much for listening. And as always, if you have any questions, email us at team at marketingtrends.com. Take care. Hello and welcome to Marketing Trends. This is producer Ben Wilson. This episode features an interview with Andy Bertera. Andy is the executive director of marketing and sales at New England Biolabs. Previously, he has also served as the VP of marketing at Promega and the head of global marketing for gene and protein discovery at GE Healthcare. On this episode, Andy talks all about how to develop a reputation in your market, optimizing the customer journey, and building a marketing team that lasts. Enjoy. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot, B2B marketing automation on the world's number one CRM. Are you ready to take your B2B marketing to new heights? With Pardot, marketers can find and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI. Learn more by visiting pardot.com slash podcast, or click on the link in our show notes. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, Chief Content Officer here at Mission.org. And on the other side of the country, Andy, how are you doing? I'm good. It's uh, great to be talking with you here today, and I appreciate you inviting me to this podcast. Yeah, we are excited to talk to you. You have a little bit of a different role from folks normally. Uh, you're not a CMO by title, but in practice, you are so much more. Can you tell me a little bit about um, your current role at New England Biolabs? Yeah, certainly. Uh, so we don't actually have the only uh, C title we have uh, in the entire organization actually is uh, our uh, CEO. Uh, everybody else is the executive directors that are on the executive team here. But my specific responsibilities are for uh, New England Biolabs global marketing operation, including strategy, tactics, and uh, the usual mix. But I also have uh, responsibility for our U.S. sales team and our U.S. customer service team. And that uh, is a very enjoyable uh, position in that it allows me to really think about all of the different touch points with our customers here domestically in the U.S. Wonderful. And you have a, a lot of responsibility, which I think, you know, some, some marketers I think would be jealous of uh, and others might be a little, a little afraid of. How do you structure your team? How does it, how does it all kind of fit together? 
So we're structured similarly to the rest of the organization in that we are divided by function. So we have a product marketing team, a um, channel marketing team, marketing communications, digital marketing, and then obviously sales and customer service added into that mix as well. And although that's perhaps somewhat classical uh, way of dividing up a marketing organization, I think the key to our organization is everybody wears multiple hats. So it doesn't matter what your actual title is, whatever the customer need is or the need uh, of the organization, people can jump from uh, role or responsibility to ensure we meet the needs of, uh, of the customer, if that's actually the, the, the case that we need to address. Yeah, and we're going to get into a bunch about customer journey, about building marketing team and and kind of the specific challenges of biotech. And I wanted to kind of start with some of the current landscape of of what you all do at New England Biolabs, because I think some of our listeners might not be familiar with the company. Certainly, yeah. Well, New England Biolabs is a uh, 45-year-old private company which is actually you know, fairly old uh, to be a private company in the biotech uh, space these days. But uh, we are perhaps best described as the staples of DNA. So I'm sure listeners have heard of staples, the company that sells you know, paper, printers, photocopiers and the like. But we make products called uh, enzymes. Enzymes are proteins that basically uh, manipulate DNA. DNA is that uh, molecule that gets transferred from uh, generation to generation and sort of instructs the cells in the body as to what uh, types of cell they are and what, they actually, uh, what those cells actually do. But instead of like staple cell photocopiers, scissors and glues, we sell uh, molecular scissors called restriction enzymes that are enzymes that basically cut DNA in specific uh, locations. We also sell glues that are called ligases that stick that DNA back together in different orders, as well as polymerases that are the photocopiers of DNA that copy that DNA into multiple copies. NEB's customers are customers, are researchers, scientists in hospitals, uh, universities, pharmaceutical companies, biotechnology companies and the like, who are studying diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's, as well as studying uh, uh, challenges in growing plants for uh, you know, uh, sustainable food and the like. It's a great company to be with because we're, we're trying to do our part to contribute to the cures of those various diseases, as well as the, those ailments in society generally. And what what kind of challenges face the biotech industry? Like what type of fi- what type of challenges do you have as a marketer? Like are there certain restrictions or difficulties in the industry that you kind of have to deal with like with such different buyer personas? Um, mm-hmm. And we can get into that a little bit later or customer personas, I should say. You know, it seems like there there could be some some really, you know, difficult kind of like buying type decisions. So curious to to see mm-hmm. kind of like what you deal with on a day-to-day basis from like a regulatory standpoint. Sure. Well, our products are used primarily for uh, research purposes only. So as a consequence, we don't have the same sort of barriers and challenges that say a pharmaceutical company has like selling a therapeutic or a diagnostic company has uh, selling a diagnostic test. Although we do sell some of our enzymes to those companies to actually help them to uh, develop the the tests and and the products that they sell. And therefore, there are various quality and manufacturing standards like GMP, for example, that uh, we have to manufacture certain of our products too. 
But the vast majority of our, our products are sold at uh, an ISO 13485 or ISO 9001 quality standard. So it's very important that they're actually produced to the same standard time after time after time, because a lot of our researchers are obviously publishing uh, their results in journals like Nature and Science. And the aim of that publication is obviously share the results with the rest of the scientific community, but also allow the scientific community to actually repeat those studies. So therefore, they need to be sure that the reagents we sell will work wherever they are actually sold to in the world. So those sorts of regulatory challenges are a little bit different by technology or by a pharma industry or diagnostics industry, as I mentioned. Specifically with regard to marketing, however, we have different challenges. Firstly, we describe ourselves very much as B to C to B. And what I mean by that is the researchers that actually use our products, they're the consumers of the product, they're the ones we're actually marketing to. So we have to basically think of them in the same way as other sort of B2C industries do. You know, how do they actually uh, act as individuals? What uh, interests do they have both scientifically as well as uh, outside of the laboratory? But they're not the ones who actually pay. The money is actually, it could be government grants, it could be uh, private donations, it could be, you know, a private company who's spending profits, you know, on their research studies. So that B component in terms of how we transact, invoice customers, receive purchase orders is also a component of it. So it's an interesting balance of really being able to learn from B2C and B2B companies and apply them into the market we serve. Yeah, it's really fascinating. And, you know, you... You and I, when we talked before, talked about this idea of the buyer's journey and how you kind of hate that phrase. I guess maybe hate is too strong for it. Maybe it's not. Why do you, why do you prickle at, at uh, when people say buyer's journey? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's maybe hate is pretty, you're probably right. It's probably too strong a word. It really comes back to our philosophy that, you know, we try to teach treat our customers as sort of peers and try to treat them how they would like to be treated. And I think when you think of a buyer's buying journey, really it has a start and an end. And really what we should be doing with our customers is building long-term relationships that go through many transactions, you know, daily, monthly, yearly, you know, ongoing and ongoing. And therefore it doesn't ever really have a start or an end. It just is a continuum of building a relationship and furthering that relationship and making it stronger over time. So therefore, you know, I prefer to use the term customer journey if you can, not even customer's buying journey, almost eliminate the word buying from it. Although, you know, buying is a part of uh, or a stage in that journey, if you like, but it shouldn't be the be all and end all to the relationship with the customer. Yeah. And you talked, or previously we talked about, you know, these touch points and how Mm -hmm. customer experience is the key competitive advantage. How do you track those touch points? Like what are the things that you do uh, or your team does? I mean, because you manage marketing and sales and and service or in, you know, kind of that customer success angle, you have the ability to, you know, make sure that your team is aligned on those things, but how kind of Mm -hmm. tactically do you do that? Yeah, I have to be honest, I'm a little bit of a a data junkie. So uh, uh, one of the great things about uh, digital marketing and and the sort of uh, move from sort of uh, classical marketing to digital methods is really have more data to actually analyze. So we're constantly trying to actually see how we can actually measure the different interactions that we have with our customers so that we can actually understand, you know, which which of them are obviously, you know, the most effective, but also which ones uh, we might want to continue to invest in or uh, invest 
further in. If I'm honest, however, what we're sort of learning is that no customers are equal. As the sort of marketing mix has got broader and broader in terms of adding, you know, whether it's adding video, whether it's adding uh, blogs, whether it's adding whatever digital sort of metric you want to uh, add to uh, your digital mix, you're not taking anything away. So as a consequence, you know, this mix is getting larger and larger. And the key is to think about uh, how many of these touch points you actually need to make to further that relationship and make it as holistic as, as possible. So to be more precise to your things, you know, we, we obviously measure if it's email, we're looking obviously still at open rates and click-through rates and things like that. But really what we're trying to see is over time, what is the lifetime value of that customer? How often is that customer actually purchasing from us? How often is that customer asking us technical support questions? You know, how often do they have a challenge? How, how quickly do we address that challenge? You know, and, and, and in saying this, you know, I haven't really sort of talked about uh, sales metrics, you know, which obviously is something we do track. But really all of these interactions, you know, our, our sort of philosophy is that uh, the sale almost happens because of them, not directly of a consequence of one or the other. And you really have to think about all of these different touch points and the need to sort of develop this relationship on a continuum such that the sales continue to happen. Yeah, I love that. I, and I love the idea that the renewal or the relationship, the relationship is the most important piece. And then that drives the renewal. You know, you, you, you've also talked about this idea of, of, you know, stealing with pride and uh, where did this kind of, where did that, that phrase come <laughs> from and why is it something that, that you feel passionate about? Yeah, I mean, that's a phrase, actually, one of my early managers, uh, when I moved from uh, a research position into my first marketing position, and I don't actually know whether it was his phrase or whether he actually stole it from somebody else, to be fair. But what he was trying to get at was that, particularly in the world that we live in, this sort of B2C to B world, there are examples of marketing tactics, different ways of working that you really can sort of take from other industries and then reinvent them as appropriate for your own industry. And that was the context of stealing with pride because, you know, you are stealing an idea from somebody else, but you are reinventing it to make it your own. And I think one of the great things that uh, marketers should be always doing is experimenting. I always say to my team, you know, never be afraid to actually try something. You know, if it fails, then I don't expect you to do it again, of course. But uh, always, you know, experiment, always take ideas. Maybe it might be something you saw on the television. It might be something in your own sort of, you know, home life of, uh, of purchasing a product or, or being marketed to. And you thought, how can we use that with scientists? Scientists, you know, by nature are fairly uh, critical and apprehensive. I mean, they don't believe that they're being marketed to at all. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a fun tactic to actually try and take marketing tactics that they are being influenced by in their daily lives and then apply that to their work life in the laboratory. Yeah, I'd love to unpack that a little bit. So, because I think that, you know, it's kind of like selling to marketers, right? Or marketing to marketers. We kind of know what the what the tactics are. Almost the opposite of that is like, they think they're immune to it. I'd be curious, what what are some of those experiments that you've done or that your team has done that have been, you know, really successful that uh, potentially other marketers that are listening could steal? <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, I, I'm a, uh, obviously, you know, we're, we're a small company, but less than 500 employees globally. So we always have to look at how we can be efficient and feel like try and be as effective as our larger competitors. And one of the ways we do that is through uh, technology. 
Now, email, marketing automation and the like is a great way of actually achieving that. And, you know, as many companies, you know, we use drip campaigns uh, and the like to do that. What we try to do, however, is to really think through, you know, the steps in the customer's evaluation of a technology or product so that we actually can stage the drip such that it really fits into their workflow. We also try and actually personalize it. And I remember, you know, the first time we actually started to use uh, a drip campaign for a particular product sample that customers were actually testing. And we set it up such that the uh, emails actually came from a scientist, uh, a scientist who was actually, you know, responsible for developing the product. And what we posi- what we were surprised at is we sent this uh, sort of email out and said something along the lines of, you know, hope you received the product sample. I uh, wanted to provide you with a little bit more information about how you might get the best out of it, et cetera, et cetera. And the replies were funny because it was coming back and said, oh, I'm really sorry, Dr. Smith. You know, I uh, forgot to use the product. I'll get on that right away. You know, thanks for sending me through this, uh, this information. You know, it's really helpful for me. So it was really trying to take uh, automation uh, and obviously, you know, personalize it uh, as I described there, but really focus on who the customer was as a scientist and provide them information that, you know, it wasn't actually trying to sell the product per se, but really trying to help them use it and get benefit from it in their scientific research. I love that. That's a great idea. I haven't heard of, of kind of setting up that type of drip campaign coming from, I mean, so are, are they an employee? Are there scientists at New England Biolabs? Yeah, I mean, we have of our total employees, most of the employees actually are scientists or have scientific backgrounds. So even a lot of the marketers uh, like myself are are former scientists, you know, who uh, understand the scientific process and can apply that to our marketing activities. Yeah, I should have. I forgot to mention that at the top that you're a microbiologist. Yeah, a long time ago now, to be to be fair, uh, I'd be dangerous if you put me back in the lab today. Uh, dangerous as a marketer, dangerous as a microbiologist, though, <laughs> potentially. Yeah, th- I mean, that's an interesting, it's an interesting case. I mean, we see, you see a lot of, you know, in tech, a lot of the product emails coming from developers, um, having your developer evangelist, you see things like that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I hadn't heard it from kind of a scientific standpoint. Yeah, it's a very... It's a, it's actually a social drop. It's a very important point you make though, because our philosophy around our support is actually geared in that same fashion. So most companies in our industry have a dedicated technical support team. You know, these are, you know, former scientists typically who are on the phone or maybe it's live chat or on email answering technical inquiries, you know, on the various products that the companies sell. Our philosophy around this is that the uh, when you ring up NEB, if it's a telephone sort of inquiry, you can actually put on your phone the actual uh, product that, you're in, that you have an inquiry about. And the first port of call is actually the manufacturing team, the person who actually manufactured that product. And all our manufacturing staff are uh, scientists and researchers, some of them still having uh, interest and in, uh, doing a little bit of research on the side. But also you can get through to the person who perhaps developed that product. So these are people who are actually almost peers and people who are doing the same sort of tasks as our actual customers. So it's always amazing when customers are ring up and, you know, they're asking particular technical questions and then the, the person on the telephone from NEB can say, oh yeah, I was doing that a similar experiment to what you're doing yesterday and this is how I designed my work, you know, and customers are actually very surprised about that. 
In fact, there's a there's a nice case study we have where a particular uh, customer rung up uh, and asked for about some questions, and uh, our researchers who were helping them with this particular technical inquiry, they came up with some ideas for how to perform that experiment, and they ended up being uh, co-authors on uh, on a publication as a result of that, which was a, a cool sort of uh, collaboration that came from a, a single customer inquiry. I love that. That's so great. You know, one of the things that and it's a great takeaway for marketers to to give superpowers to the folks that need them, right? Like I think a lot of times, you know, as marketers, we want to, you know, have the email come from us or ha- uh, have it come from, you know, the the generalist account. But if you're going to whatever that specialist is on your team or the product leader or whoever it is, and say, hey, I'm, I'll give you a ghostwriter that can help you. If you outline this content, if you take, you know, five minutes a day and outline a piece of content, we can kind of fill out the rest and give you, gives you some additional thought leadership. I'm sure that the product leader would be greatly appreciative because they probably don't want to spend a lot of time writing. And they also might be a horrible writer potentially too, (laughs) um, which, which, you know, either way, you're kind of solving a problem for them. Do you think that that kind of like, how does that evolve over time? How does that type of thought leadership, you know, whether, you know, you turn that into additional pieces of content as lead magnets that are out there or things like that? I mean, is what's kind of the next progression of things like that? Uh, I want to make sure I understand the question. So you're talking about evolving from these sort of technical inquiries to actually provide more support information. Is that what the question was? Well, so I, I guess so from the, um, you know, from the drip campaign, like, hey, we've seen okay. success with the drip campaign influencing people that we're already talking to. What about, you know, new customers, prospects, folks that right. are out there? Uh, how do we create whether it's content or other Got types it. of things in the same sort of way? Yeah, now a good good question. So the NEB's philosophy, you know, when we think about almost I don't say every but the, a lot of decisions that we actually make in the company, we try to think firstly about what is the impact on the science. So what is the uh, impact on the actual roles of our customers who are trying to discover, you know, whatever piece of research they're actually doing. Uh, And by doing that, we always think that we're putting the customer first. And then if you like the financial transactions, you know, come uh, a sort of third to those sorts of decisions. But by thinking in that way, we believe a lot of the marketing activities we put together really sort of resonate with our customers. So, So a good example of this would be the NEB catalog. So, you know, catalogs obviously today, uh, well, maybe they're a little bit of a resurgence uh, in the last year or so, but uh, certainly prior to that, everything was going digital. There were less and less catalogs. NEB has actually had a catalog from almost its beginning over 40 years ago. But its success in the catalog, to be honest with you, was not the sort of front two thirds of the catalog, which obviously listed the products and their prices and their specifications and all that uh, important information. It was really the last third. And the last third was really technical information, sometimes about our products, sometimes not, sometimes about uh, general scientific information that you know helped customers to actually carry out the experiments they needed to carry out. And what we found is uh, over time, these catalogs, you know, if you think you're in a laboratory setting, often the uh, scientists have gloves on. So it's not as easy to sort of pick up your cell phone and sort of uh, Google what's the answer to this. And very often a paper interaction is actually a very easy one to do. So customers have, you know, catalogs that are, you know, 10, 15 years old with dog-eared pages, post-it notes on the corner that they can quickly flip open to say, you know, what's the answer to this? Or how do I use that piece of information to help uh, set up that experiment? 
And Adebi's philosophy about that of focusing on the science and focusing on on the customer and its content has really led us, you know, forward from that catalog into today's digital interactions. So even with our, um, you know, if I you know use our website as example, when I first came on board and we started to look at some of the statistics around our website, one of the things we were very concerned about is our bounce rate. Customers would actually come visit the website, usually typically visit one page and then leave again. And, and, you know, that's obviously the definition of a bounce, just come to one page and leave again. But what we actually found out was what they had in mind, they had a technical question. They came, they Googled that uh, question. Google brought them to the NEB website. They got the answer to that page and they left again. And it was actually a very positive interaction. And it's one of the reasons our website gets such good ratings is that we help scientists to answer their questions. And of course, we want to sell them products and them to buy products from the website as well. But number one, by actually answering those technical questions over time, it's built a relationship with them that says, oh, these guys put science first. They help me. Therefore, you know, uh, their products must be good as well. What about some of the web tools that you all create, which I think, you know, is, is really cutting edge and some of the, some of the type of, of really value added, uh, you know, content for lack of a better term or tools that, that, uh, that are out there. Yeah. Again, building on our philosophy of putting science first, I think I'm right in saying roughly 25% of the visitors to neb.com, our website, actually use one of the scientific tools. So similar to that experience I mentioned with the NEB catalog, you know, they're going to our website with a particular scientific question or um, challenge they're trying to actually resolve. And they're using these tools to actually get an answer to that question. Often it doesn't actually relate to uh, the products we actually sell. They're just general uh, scientific questions. You know, what's the molecular weight of X or, you know, uh, how do I set up one molar reaction of uh, one molar buffer of this particular uh, chemical, et cetera. Some of them are more detailed than that, obviously. But uh, I think, again, by providing this uh, scientific content, this support for the researchers, it has a knock-on effect in terms of how NEB is perceived for them in terms of uh, a support organization, not just an organization that sells and products. This is actually a great segue into reputation because you've been in the role for quite some time and, you know, reputation is something that for a lot of CMOs is tough because we, we've talked about a ton on the podcast before about, you know, the role of, of the CMO and technology companies is, you know, like less than 22 months, 18 to 22 months. Um, we've mm-hmm. talked a lot about, you know, the, the Corn Ferry study from a, a few years ago about, you know, CEOs kind of mistrusting CMOs. You've had a, a pretty different experience with that. And why do you think that reputation is so important? And what are the things that you've done to build a reputation, both personally and as a company, and also build reputation into your marketing efforts? number of parts of that question. Great question. So let me break it down a little bit. Uh, so firstly, on the uh, company side, maybe some comments on reputation itself. Um, I'm sure when you were a kid uh, like myself, you know, your mother always says, you know, don't listen to what everybody says about you. You know, you just focus on uh, doing the right thing and, uh, and things will come good of that. When you're talking about a company, it's different, you know, and in today's sort of social media world and web-driven world, you really do have to uh, listen to what customers are saying about you. Some of it, uh, unfortunately, isn't always accurate, 100% accurate. Sometimes it's perceptions versus reality, but that reality obviously spreads quickly, particularly if it's uh, unfortunately negative. And therefore, you know, your reputation is built on those comments about what the customers say about you. 
In NEB's case, I think our reputation has really been built up based on the values of the company. You know, we talk about our values as sort of three words, uh, passion, humility, and being genuine. Passion, the first one, is really about, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that putting science first and having a passion for science. You know, we uh, think of ourselves as scientists ourselves, you know, large numbers of the company carrying out research in a similar way to our customers do, and therefore having that sort of similar passion that, uh, that our customers do. Humility is a, an interesting one and, a, and a, maybe a harder one being a marketer, but it's really about not being overly arrogant, I guess, and really sort of, uh, you know, putting, again, putting the customer first and, and thinking about what, is, what we need to do to make the customer successful. It doesn't matter whether they mention our name uh, or not, you know, they know that uh, where the support comes from and hopefully that'll come back to uh, provide us feedback and end up being a loyal customer, they'll end up being a loyal customer over time. But we don't need to actually shout from the rooftops to do that. Hopefully they'll do that for us. And then the last one being genuine is really about, you know, ensuring that customers see us as we are. We're all people. And for us, I truly believe we put people and people interactions before short-term profits. And again, we believe by doing that and people seeing us as we're, we're genuine. So some examples with that would be if we don't know an answer to something, we'll actually say, you know, we won't try and pretend we do. We also will help customers with their experiments, even if they're not using our products. It's uh, always quite amazes me how many times we'll actually support a customer's experiment. And then halfway through the experiment, the customer realizes they're using one of our competitor's products, for example. But again, all these together, these interactions, you know, I believe, you know, help to build loyal relationships with those customers. So maybe I'll stop there before going on to the uh, myself. But any, does that uh, make sense? That resonate? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I just think that it feels like you have such a long-term approach in the company being around and being a private company for so long. It just seems like you think of things in a longer time horizon than sometimes other, you know, guests that we have had on the show where a lot of times they're marketing to a specific, you know, shorter term target. And I think, I just think it's an interesting way of looking at things, you know, and you, you've been to a handful of dream forces, right? Six, I think. Yeah. So, well, it's just interesting. And obviously, you know, Salesforce and, and, uh, and Pardot is, is sponsor of the podcast, but I think it's another kind of like one of those things where, you know, I've been a bunch to a bunch of those as well. And it's kind of one of those places where you see a lot of, you know, people that, you know, they're kind of year after year, the folks that have stayed in, in their roles and how those kind of mindsets have changed kind of as you go and something that has, mm-hmm. you know, kind of been there for a long time. But it's just an interesting, it's an interesting look at a company that kind of is built to last and is built here to be here for a long time, kind of takes such a serious role about customer journey because mm-hmm. that's what ultimately it's all about. It's not about bringing someone in the door, but kind of the length of length of, of how you do this over time. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been fortunate. I mean, I'll uh, be celebrating my uh, 10th anniversary at New England Biolabs in July. And I mean, it doesn't feel like 10 years at all. I mean, uh, every day it feels like a new day with uh, new challenges, excitement that's flying through the interactions with my team, other members of the NEB organization, and more importantly, with our customers. I think what you said about Dreamforce actually is very true. I mean, as, as you know, I think the, the, the focus of the last uh, Dreamforce was definitely about customer 360 and customer centric 
electricity. And, you know, that, that fits very well with, uh, with NEB. You know, there's various value propositions that uh, organizations, organizations can have. Ours is definitely around customer intimacy, but perhaps unlike uh, other customers, you know, we don't and, and this, this is actually, a, there's a negative in this as well, to be honest with you, but we don't basically say we're only going to have strong relationships with our most profitable customers. Obviously, you do need to prioritize and, you know, larger customers typically have more funding. So you, you, you migrate to those customers. But when a customer rings up for a technical support question, it doesn't actually matter whether the smallest customer, the biggest customer, the uh, most complicated question, the simplest question, they all need to be treated the same. You don't know, you know, whether that customer you're talking to today or interacting on email today, you know, whether they're actually going to strike it lucky, have the next eureka moment and then be a, you know, a founder of a a biotech next year that's going to be the next major pharmaceutical company. So you really have to think about that long term in the support that you give to a customer. Yeah. Do you feel like it allows you to have more flexibility, you know, personally as, uh, as you build the marketing team? Yeah. And, and this is, we can get into, you know, how you've structured your team and all of that. You know, how do you source marketers in a company, a scientist sort of a thing. But I'd be curious, like, you know, knowing that you've been here for a long time and you know the market so well and trying to bring new talent into the organization. I'm just curious how you go about that. Uh, well, to your first question about when you were describing some of the things you were, I, I think it's probably worth highlighting that definitely being a private company helps to think longer term. You know, we don't have the sort of uh, same quarter to quarter pressures that, you know, a company who uh, has been interrogated by Wall Street uh, does. But I do believe a lot of the principles that we have here can be applied to larger companies. And certainly I've experienced at GE and uh, GE Healthcare specifically. And I know their focus on the customer there, uh, you know, can be done correctly, you know. But to answer your question specifically about hiring and choosing the right members of the team, to be honest, we take hiring very, very seriously, uh, as I'm sure every organization was, to be fair. Our discussion is not just, however, about, you know, whether the whether the future employee has got the right uh, talents, the right experience, the right skill set to meet with uh, the position that we're hiring for. It's also about fit. And, and to me, fit falls into three, three areas. There's fit in the position itself, which overlaps with some of those skills and experiences that I just mentioned. There's fit within the team they're going to work with, you know, so are they going to be a disruptive influence positively or negatively uh, to the other team members? And also, do they fit with the culture in the organization? You know, we've been very fortunate at NEB. I mean, I, I may not be totally right on this number, but our average tenure currently is around 13 years, which is, you know, long for any company. And uh, that number's actually been higher, but we actually had a number of retirees who've been here for 30 plus years that are recently retired. And of course, we're growing and adding uh, new staff who have, you know, zero years to uh, change that average. So by taking time and actually making sure that a future employee, you know, fits with uh, the culture and all those other aspects, you know, we're really looking to hire the next person who's going to be here for the next sort of uh, decade or two decades or even three decades. Uh, Recruitment, and, and employment is expensive. So finding employees that want to work for you, believe in your culture, and are going to add to the overall skill set in your organization is key to the success of the company. Do you have a particular hiring philosophy or something like that? I mean, our process of hiring, I wouldn't say is you know radically different from uh, my experiences at other companies. 
I think it's, unfortunately, the downside probably does take longer, I'll be honest with you. And I think one of the keys is, you know, bringing them to NEB. So even if we're uh, hiring, you know, a salesperson who might be the other side of the country, you know, bringing them to our offices here so they can actually experience what it's like to actually be part of NEB, I think is key. You know, that face-to-face interview, and they usually are coming here for uh, half a day, sometimes even an entire day, is really to, you know, give them a little bit of immersement into in, immersement into what NEB is all about. You know, what what do these people they're talking to look like? You know, what do they uh, do on an average day? How do they interact with customers? And then seeing their reaction to that, you know, is it something that they, excites them? Is it something that they feel they would be a good fit uh, within? So I think that aspect of it is important. So I don't think, as I say, I don't think it's necessarily different to other companies. We probably just take our time and, you know, explore them as individuals to try and see if that fit is actually uh, as true as perhaps we think it is. Let's get into our lightning round questions. These are fast and easy questions, just <laughs> like marketing automation with Pardot, fast and easy. Questions that you have no idea what's coming. All right, let's go for it. What app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Probably Facebook. That sounds uh, maybe a little bit not the answer you perhaps expecting, but Facebook to me is the communication with relatives we have in other parts of the world. You know, I'm uh, I'm Welsh, as you can probably uh, maybe be able to tell from my accent. So uh, we have family overseas. We have family in Australia, and just seeing other members of the family, you know, in the pictures and the posts they put on Facebook as they're growing up. So I'll probably say that's the most fun. What about your favorite one day getaway near where you live? Well, this is going to be one in the future, so I'll, I'll answer that. So my wife and I are currently buying a, a lake house up in Maine. We have two kids who, you know, one's graduated, one's a sophomore at college. So we're hoping to be able to actually use that lake house to uh, get away uh, for the day, for the weekend. And in my case, uh, get back to fishing, uh, which I haven't done for several decades. And I'm excited to see uh, if I can still catch a fish. I <laughs> love it. Do you have a favorite book that you read recently or a podcast that you've listened to recently that you particularly enjoyed? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a book that I haven't quite finished, but I'm actually reading a, a book currently that's part biography, part sort of, I don't know, business book, I guess. And it's a story of Patagonia. And the reason I like it, it has actually very interesting similarities to some of the history of uh, New England Biolabs. You know, an enigmatic uh, founder, a founder who had beliefs that didn't have to run a business the way, uh, you know, corporate America has sort of taught the way you should do that. Similar sort of environmental philosophies that the two companies had, as well as obviously a a focus on a initially, in the case of Patagonia, niche market, you know, niche uh, set of customers. So that's probably, I haven't quite finished it, but uh, that's a book I'm very much enjoying. And let's go a little bit back to our steel with pride, uh, seeing if there's any sort of uh, lessons that I can learn and reinvent from the clothing industry in this case to the life science industry. Yeah. You know, we did an episode on Gert Boyle in, uh, in our podcast, The Story, Un- Unknown Backstory, Gert Boyle, who's the you know, CEO for a long time for Columbia Sportswear. And right. uh, I felt the same way. I mean, just so many marketing tactics that they use, that she used over the years that when you're building um, something in such a commoditized industry, how do you stand out? It's really interesting. I, I, I'll, check out, uh, I'll check out the one on Patagonia. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah it's good. What was the worst campaign that you've ever done? 
I'm not sure if this is a, a maybe exactly where you're going, but I won't give the specifics away. But there was actually a, a product, a new service that I, I championed for when I was in a, a previous company. And, you know, it wasn't a huge investment, but uh, we bought in, you know, inventory of this product. It was actually moving into a new market. I believe that I actually knew the market better than I did. So I probably didn't do as much market research and as much uh, voice of customer as I should have. And although we sold some products really quickly, it then we didn't sell much more beyond that. And we were left with a fairly uh, large amount of inventory, unfortunately, to uh, write off. And that was a real lesson for me in terms of thinking about listening to customers. Although you have to listen to customers, you know, you should never actually make a decision based on just talking to one or two customers. You know, really make sure you understand that not all customers are equal, not all customers think the same. Really get a, a perception of, of as many customers as you can before sort of making uh, investment decisions like the one uh, I convinced everybody to make. <laughs> how about your uh, How about your favorite campaign that you've done? Favorite campaign. Probably one more recently uh, was, uh, was, I suppose a few years ago now I see, was really when anybody was starting to think about how it would uh, interact or sort of intertwine uh, human and uh, digital touch points in a campaign and really think about how we basically could grab uh, customers' attention in, in a market that was fairly crowded. Once we grab that attention, really sort of uh, drive the customer towards testing the product and then move it into some of the drip campaigns that I mentioned uh, earlier to try and you know move the customer to actually test the product, get a favorable result from that product, and then obviously start to buy and then repeat buy. And it really was pleasurable because you know it really was a full end-to-end. You know, customer knows nothing through to customer becomes a loyal repeat purchaser of that product. And we had data at most of the different uh, touch points to sort of know, you know, how we could evolve that. And that particular campaign taught us a lot about, uh, you know, how we could use technology in our marketing activities. And we really sort of evolved that through our thinking in subsequent campaigns. So it was a, it was a fun one because it really was a, you know, a team effort across many parts of the organization from the developers of the product through to uh, the marketers, obviously the marketing activities through to the technologists uh, helping us to actually put the things into uh, practice. So it was, a, it was a fun one. What question do you never get asked that you want to get asked? I don't know. That's a, that's a tough question. <laughs> you think you've stumped me there, but uh, I never get asked whether it's hard work. Well, it's funny. I mean, the reason I brought that up is uh, I think I enjoy what I do. So I probably am a little bit on the workaholic side, to be honest with you, but it's only because I enjoy it. So therefore, you know, I work hard because I'm enjoying it and, you know, the cycle goes on. And even I think, you know, when, when times are, you know, when, if, uh, I don't know, sales are not going in the direction you would hope they were, even that, you know, after, once you got through it, of course, you know, you, you actually learn so much from those uh, times by experimenting and doing things in a different way to try and turn a business round that, you know, you can get enjoyment from that uh, through what you're learning. So yes, it is, it, it is hard work, but, uh, you know, I think it's enjoyable hard work. Final question for lightning round. What would be your best advice for a first time head of marketing? I'm not sure there's one answer to that question. I think number one would actually be to build a team around you that brings experiences and skills that you don't actually have yourself. Included in that, have a team that is willing to actually challenge your thinking. 
you know, I, I don't think anybody can say they know the answer to everything. But if you build a team that can, you know, challenge you constructively so that between the team themselves, you know, uh, you can actually come up with better solutions than any one individual can uh, alone. And then perhaps the second thing comes back to what I said earlier about experimenting and I guess a little bit of steel with pride is never be afraid to actually challenge the organization to think a little bit differently. Obviously, everyone says think outside the box and examples of that type, but really do, you know, challenge yourself to say, okay, what if we did this? What if we did the other? And obviously, you know, you need to weigh up the risks of doing those, uh, whatever those ideas are. But never be afraid to experiment because I think, you know, for me, as you quite rightly said, I do have a scientific background, but I do believe marketing is a science and experimentation within that science, within marketing is actually key to its ultimate success and also the enjoyment of any individual who does marketing. Because if you're doing the same thing over and over, you know, let's face it, it's not exciting. But if you do actually experiment, do things differently, learn from them, build from them, that's where the excitement comes. I love it. Andy, this has been fantastic. Any uh, any other final thoughts before we get out of here? No, I very much appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the podcast and uh, and talk to you. Maybe one final thing I might say is that, you know, we all live in a, a changing world. And, you know, although NEB has a long history and uh, has built a reputation over that time, one of my challenges is always to sort of, you know, stretch, stretch our brand a little bit to see what new markets we can actually move into based on our, obviously our values. But the other thing we have to always remember is the world is changing. Although, you know, I mentioned earlier, scientists don't like to think of themselves as uh, being impacted by marketing. You know, you ask them what their favorite experiences are online and they're all going to say Google, they're all going to say Amazon for shopping. So as a consequence, you have to change with those times and taking those experiences that other companies are delivering and then reinventing them for your own industry is just a fantastic and enjoyable thing to do. So change with the times as well. Thanks so much, Andy. We really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to you soon. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Marketing Trends. Marketing Trends is brought to you by Salesforce Pardot. World-class B2B marketers use Pardot to generate and nurture leads, close more deals, and maximize ROI at every stage of the sales cycle. Empower your marketing team to become revenue-generating superheroes and let Pardot's data analysis keep an eye on the bottom line. Learn more by visiting pardot.com podcast or click on the link in our show notes. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, 
and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.